0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, Mysteries of the Kingdom. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, verses 27 to 32, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Sin Against the Holy Spirit.
1: I can't imagine a time when Jesus was not locked in controversy. And if you think about it, that's so very different from the picture of Jesus that that people are often given today. Jesus the healer. Jesus the one who extends mercy. Jesus the one who is the hope of the human race. But the Bible gives us a picture of Jesus, which is Jesus, the great military commander locked in a great mortal conflict. The kingdom of heaven has tumbled into the present hour, and in response, Satan has roused his troops, the lines have been drawn up, the first shots of anger have been fired, and all heaven and earth is now engaged in warfare. Whenever I think of that image, I think of two things. The first is found later in Matthew, all the way in Matthew 16, where Jesus promises that the gates of hell will not prevail. He pictures the kingdom of heaven building the church, And the church, a mighty army, gathers her troops and rushes against a strong city, the city of Satan. But the gates of the great city begin to break, and the battle-hardened troops of the king of kings invade, and they drag out the captives of the prince of darkness, dragging them right out of his city. Well, the second image is the one presented to us in the book of Revelation. Revelation shows us the other side of this war. The dragon marshalling his beast and false prophets, killing the servants of the king of kings. And so I don't think we'll ever understand Jesus unless we see this world of warfare. Now, we will play this out, but as we do, you might be wondering, if you read through the passage we're about to study today, how all of this ends up with a grave warning. You know, it's the warning that we not sin against the Holy Spirit, for if we do, we will not be forgiven, not in this age or in the age to come. Look, a great many people are frightened, thinking they they might have committed that sin. But if I might, most of the time when I hear a teaching about the sin against the Holy Spirit, I don't find the teaching in connection with the great spiritual warfare in which we are now engaged. But clearly, in Matthew chapter 12, that's exactly where we find that teaching. So, let's begin to read our passage. Remember the context. Jesus has just healed a demon-possessed man. And the Pharisees have said, look, the only reason you're able to do that is that you're the prince of demons. And in response, Jesus says that he's attacking the kingdom of Satan. And if they think there's a civil war among the forces of darkness, then it's clear that the forces of darkness are doomed. Now with that, we come to Matthew 12, 27 to 28. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, we might wonder how it's possible for the sons of the Pharisees who, you know, as Jesus references them, well, they're actually the disciples of the Pharisees. So, how is it possible for them to cast out demons? So, I say that because, you know, the Old Testament has no record of anyone ever casting out a demon. How then are the disciples of the Pharisees pulling that off? Well, the answer is, according to extra-biblical material from that time period, and and here I'm referring to the writings of Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian shortly after the time of Jesus. You know, some Jews believed that Solomon himself had handed down the art of incantations for healing and exorcism. And so, for instance, Josephus mentions a Jewish exorcist by the name of Eliezer, Who used a magical signet ring to draw out a demon through someone's nostril and then would command the demon to tip over a cup left on the table just to demonstrate that the demon had really left. Now, there are others who thought that if a demon smelled fish liver, that demon would leave. I mean, that kind of stuff was known among the followers of the Pharisees. So here's the question, well, does that stuff actually work? Well, no, I can't imagine it does. But a whole series of superstitions arose around how to handle demons. And Jesus here in verse 27 is not saying that these people actually succeed in doing that, only that the Pharisees actually believed it. Essentially, he's saying that if that's what you guys claim to do, and it's performed in this kind of a manner, well, how can you be so sure these people aren't working for Satan themselves? And yet that's what you accuse me of doing. But, of course, Jesus never used magical spells or methods to cast out demons. You know, in every case where he deals with demons, one finds him merely speaking the word and the demons flee. You know, in some cases, they even beg him not to condemn him before their time. You know, it seems that the demons were genuinely confused about Jesus. They knew that when the kingdom of God finally was revealed, they were doomed. But Jesus surprised them. Has the kingdom of God already arrived? Well, they couldn't imagine that it had because so much evil was still going on. And yet, here he was, healing the sick and throwing them out. You know, I remember a number of years ago having a friend who had an employee who was into witchcraft and magic and the occult. You know, consequently, a demon, although not possessing her, had moved into her house. And every night, she could hear furniture moving and she was becoming increasingly terrified. And so, for the first time, this woman was interested in Jesus, and my friend brought her to my office. And I was asked to come and pray for that house, and and for better or for worse, I guess I just agreed. I remember that incident so well because when I first met that woman, she told me the demon would kill me. After all, she said, I know spiritual power when I see it, and you have no power at all. I told her I didn't need any power, at least not her kind magic spells and formulas and secret incantations. I mean, all that I think is just nonsense. All I needed was to know someone who had the authority in heaven and on earth. I remember the day I prayed in her house. She told me she saw the demon look at me in horror and flee. She said, they just don't do that. And then she said, how did you do that? And I told her I didn't, I just know someone, the demons dread and fear and loathe, and his name is Jesus and they never hang around him. And that's what Jesus brought. For when he came, the kingdom of heaven was already beginning to to tumble into the present hour, and and demons were running for their lives. And such is the nature of the kingdom of God. And as he preaches, a great war is breaking out, and the demons are losing. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, as we know, the gospel of grace and forgiveness of sins and peace with God. But it's also a gospel of war. Paul reminds us of that in Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You know, whenever and wherever the gospel is preached, we're also announcing that Satan's kingdom is coming to an end. Even though Satan fights and rages, he's already lost the crucial battle. And Bible teachers often remark that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. That is, the final battle is yet to come, and the outcome of that battle is not in doubt, but now the battle rages. But back to our dialogue in Matthew. The Pharisees see this, and they seek to explain it by saying, he's driving out demons because he is the prince of demons. Now, to Matthew 12, 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Notice the words that Jesus is using. His ministry is to plunder Satan's house. Of course, he demonstrates that every time he casts out a demon, but he's doing more. Now, listen to how John describes that situation in First John chapter 5, verse 19. He said, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, John does not mean that all non-Christians are satanic, or that all non-Christians are in league with Satan. He means, however, that since the fall of Adam, the entire world has been Satan's fortress. But now that Christ has come, with every conversion, Satan loses more of his house. With every conversion, his house is being plundered. So imagine it in this way. It's like a home invasion robbery. There's a very wicked man who owns a very large home. And in this home, there are treasures of all kinds. And this wicked man has gained these treasures through organized crime and through drugs and and prostitution, theft and, and violence. But one day, a man stronger than the one who lives in the house doesn't knock on the door. In fact, he kicks the front door down. And as he comes through the door, the strong man strikes the wicked man hard so that the wicked man falls at the strong man's feet and the strong man binds him up. And once he's bound, he backs up a big truck to the wicked man's house and he starts to empty out his most treasured possessions. And the wicked man can do absolutely nothing about it. He's, he's raging and bellowing and cursing. But the strong man just continues to plunder his house. Jesus says, have you noticed every single time I'm driving out a demon, that's precisely what I'm doing.
0: Offering Bible teaching resources that provide relevant biblical truth is at the center of the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. This month our daily Bible teaching program focuses on the expositional teaching of the Gospel of Matthew chapters 11 to 13, entitled, The Mysteries of the Kingdom. How is it in a world so out of control that we believe God is in control? It's a mystery, but a mystery revealed in His Word. This series, along with every Back to the Bible Canada resource, is made available free to anyone who would know the truth about God. Every program, article, blog, video, online, podcast, mobile app, or even the Truth in Life magazine is simply free. A goal of Back to the Bible Canada is Bible teaching without barrier. Special thanks to all those who make this possible. To know more or to partner with Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible.
1: Now, Jesus has been saying that he's plundering Satan's house. That's what happened during his ministry. He says, I'm driving out demons and I'm calling men and women to myself. They were before this time in the possession of Satan, but Satan can't do one thing to stop Jesus from taking them from him. And that's what happened when Jesus healed that demon-possessed, mute, and blind man. But Jesus has more to say, and now I'm reading Matthew 12, verse 30. Jesus now has a word of warning about his activity. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And you'll notice here that these words are spoken directly to the Pharisees. He's telling them right now, you'll have to make a decision. You'll either be with me or against me. There will be no neutrality. After all, this is war, and it is a war that engulfs the human race. Neutrality is not possible, especially for you Pharisees. And then having stated that fact, he goes on and gives one of the most profound warnings in all the Scripture. It's found in Matthew twelve, thirty-one to thirty-two. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come." Now, I need to stop here and deal thoroughly with something that is for a great many people and for some Christians a very difficult passage and even one that frightens them. See, many Christians have worried that they have committed the unforgivable sin. Some have argued that if they don't get victory over a habitual sin in their life, well, then they can never be forgiven. Others argue that this is the sin of apostasy, that is, the sin of falling away from Christ. Others argue that it must have something to do with some terrible sin, that once having done that, there's no way back. And they give examples like defiant irreverence of God and even cursing God. And even though I'll be quick to say that all of the above is not what Jesus is talking about, I think it's very important to hear it said that there is indeed a certain kind of sin of which there is no way back, that is, we'll never be forgiven. And so I don't wish in any way to minimize the gravity of what's being said. How could I, since Jesus held out this possibility and even threatened us, that we should avoid this thing? So let's set the record straight. How many of you remember Peter denying Christ at a critical hour? Do you remember that he did it not just once, but three times? So what is he forgiven? Well, you might remember that in John 21, corresponding directly to the three denials of Peter, Jesus asked Peter now three times, Peter, do you love me? And each time with a broken heart, Peter says, yes, I love you. And then each time Jesus says, feed my sheep. We know what he meant. He was reinstating Peter as the key leader who would care for the church of Jesus. So was Peter forgiven? Yes, he was. And from that, you should learn. If you've ever denied your Lord, can you be forgiven? Yes, you can. You can repent and find forgiveness in him. How many of you remember King David? He sinned greatly, adultery, lying, and murder. And then he confessed his sins. Was he forgiven? Yes, he was. Psalm 51 was written by David in which he writes, Blot out my transgressions, wash me from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. And did David know whether or not God would do that? Well, Yes, he did. For he writes, the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart, and he knows that in the brokenness of repentance, God has forgiven him. See, if David knew that, how much more should you know it, that Christ, by his death on the cross, has washed you clean no matter what you've done? Do you remember the story of the prodigal son, a young man who was at one time in the house of his father, and then he wandered away? When he comes to his senses and goes back to his father, was he forgiven? Yeah, he was. The Bible says the father ran in his direction and welcomed him. He killed the fattened calf and said, this my son was dead, but he's alive again. Listen, if you've wandered from the faith and now you're unsure of whether or not you're ever going to be invited back, hear this glorious word, son or daughter, the father rejoices indeed. All of heaven rejoices over one lost child who's found his or her way home. Come home. Welcome home. The Father's arms are open wide. Do you remember what Jesus taught in regard to forgiving someone else who sinned against us? We are told that we are to forgive them 70 times 7 if they keep repenting. Do you think God would command us to do this when he himself will not? If you've not yet learned that by the Spirit to put to death those misdeeds of the body, but you keep going back to the Father and honestly confessing the sins you've repeated before, will your heavenly Father forgive you? Yes, he will. And if you've fallen into the same sin of the flesh a million times, hear me, then confess a million and one times. And don't you ever fall into self-pity or into despair or into unbelief. Take hold of the promise. Claim, First John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you hear that? From all unrighteousness. Don't let evil confuse you. Put your hope in Christ and in the promises in his word. There is not one sin, if we're repentant and willing to turn from it, that cannot be forgiven. Well, if that's the case, What then can Jesus possibly mean about this sin against the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer has everything to do with the context. When the Pharisees say that Jesus is in league with Satan, they're doing far more than speaking evil against Jesus. For if all they were doing is speaking against Jesus, and then they came to their senses and repented, well, they would be accepted and they would live. We know that because that's exactly what the Bible promises. Well, what then is this sin against the Holy Spirit? We'll look again at the context. The Pharisees are not just sinning, they're doing something far more diabolical. Having all the evidence of the kingdom at hand, they set their faces against the kingdom and become the servants of the evil one. So let me explain this as best as I know how. The first sin of the Pharisees was the rejection of Jesus and the truth of the gospel. Of this, if they repented, they could be forgiven. But the second sin is their rejection of Jesus in full awareness of what they're doing, that is, thoughtfully and self-consciously rejecting the work of the Spirit. The Pharisees have seen Jesus' ministry, that it's empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they know it. But for whatever reason, be it jealousy or arrogance or hatred, they decide to lie about him and ascribe to Satan that which they know God has done. See, I think Professor Leon Morris put this very well. He said, when a person takes up a position like that of the Pharisees, when not by way of misunderstanding, but through hostility of what is good, that person calls good evil and, on the other hand, makes evil his good, then that person has put himself in a state that prevents forgiveness. It is not that God refuses to forgive. It is that the person who sees good as evil and evil as good is quite unable to repent and thus to come humbly to God and ask for forgiveness. Do people do that today? Yeah, I think they do. They are enemies of the gospel who know the truth and seek to destroy that truth by any means possible. In Matthew 13, when we get there, Jesus will refer to them as the sons of the evil one. So let's see if I can summarize this. The kingdom of Satan has a weakness, and it's this. It's much weaker than God. And the kingdom of Satan has suffered a mortal blow at the hands of Christ. But now it fights back, and in verse 31 and 32, we learn that the kingdom of Satan, in response to its numerous defeats, tries now to recruit people who know the gospel well, but who give their lives to opposing the truth of Christ. They create chaos. They create doubt. They actively spread lies, and they actively subvert the truth of Christ. They can be clergymen. They can be theologians. They are also often powerful world leaders. And such people were narrow in Judas and many despots in history that have given their lives in the attempt to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And in this passage, Jesus warns us about this. But I think for those who are theologians who actively try to subvert the truth of Scripture, they need to hear this warning most fully. For to be on the side of Satan means no hope. What can it mean for us? Well, it means that regardless of the opposition, Satan's kingdom cannot stand. Satan's kingdom has received a mortal blow. And even though we have sinned, We can always come to Christ. He can't even prevent us from doing that. So in spite of all the sufferings that may greet us today, we should remember this, Christ has overcome and we belong to him and not to the evil one.
0: John, uh, I guess the question needs to be asked like, this demon possession, this this power of of Satan, all these things that sort of people struggle with and are concerned about. What kind of credence should we be giving to those things? Where should we be looking uh, for confidence?
1: Yeah, I mean, we need to take the reality of the satanic kingdom very, very seriously. Now, a couple of things I guess I didn't say, Ben. I mean, one of the things I can say is that we know that Satan is unlike God. He can only be in one place at one time. Only God is everywhere present. Satan is localized. He sends out his demons. So, I'm going to say that we've probably, those listening to me, have probably never encountered Satan personally, but his demons. So, when we hear about demon possession or things that often, you know, frighten everyday believers, I think what we need to do is gain far more confidence in the power of Christ. He was the one who cast demons out. He was the one, you know, when he showed up, they ran in fright. So be confident that they'll continue to do that today. Mention the name of Jesus with confidence, and in so doing, you will have confidence.
0: Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for our continuation of Mysteries of the Kingdom right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. A special thank you to all those who graciously supported the Back to the Bible year-end campaign. Your gift in December is critical to launching the ministry into the new year. It supports the daily program, all of our online and print ministries, and the privilege we have to support Bible teaching internationally and so much more. So on behalf of Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, in doubt, and the entire ministry team, here at Back to the Bible Canada, a huge expression of our gratitude. Thank you for allowing this ministry to engage more people in more ways with the truth of God's Word in 2019. Lives are being changed, and you play an important part in all that takes place. If you'd like to continue to support the ministry or would like to know more about all the resources available, please call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.